This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, your host and uh, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. And we're coming to you today from the 2009 AAJ Annual Convention in San Francisco. And San Francisco, as you know, is a beautiful city. We're having a great time out here. It's a lot of interesting topics being discussed inside the uh, AAJ Convention. And I hope you can get out here at San Francisco. It's beautiful. It's uh, The weather's great, although it's a little chilly. <laughs> I will say that. Okay. It's no secret that today the medical malpractice area is the, one of the most difficult areas of litigation. Uh, plaintiffs not only have to deal with the physical effects of medical malpractice, but also the challenges that they face in the courts. And today on Ringler Radio, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the challenges facing a medical malpractice plaintiff in the trial court and specifically deal with how the biases of some judges can affect the result. That's kind of an interesting topic. And to help us with all that is our special guest today, Attorney Barry Nace, Senior Partner at Paulson & Nace in Washington, D.C. For close to 40 years, Barry has worked to protect the rights of victims of medical malpractice, drug and product liability, wrongful death, and other personal injury cases. And to date, he's had dozens of verdicts and settlements in excess of the millions, uh, big ones, Barry, I think over $30 million in some in some instances. So you're, uh, you've done quite a bit in this arena. But one of uh, Barry's cases, the one he's most famous for, is a case known as Daubert versus Merrill Dow, in which the Supreme Court eased the standard for the admissibility of expert testimony and uh, and it's generated more than 100 articles, newsletters, and websites all around the country. It's, uh, it's one of the most uh, noted cases and, uh, in today's environment in terms of expert testimony. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that case, uh, even though I know uh, Barry's probably tired of hearing about that case. We are going to talk about that case because I know a lot of our audience is interested in it. He's also served as the president of uh, what was used to be known as ATLA, now AHA, from 93 to 94. You've had quite a career there, Barry. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you very much. Well, let's talk about uh, we're here at AAJ. You were the president of the AAJ. Uh, tell us about your experience in that role, and uh, then kind of talk about how things have changed since you were the president of AAJ till today. Well, the uh, the organization uh, started many, many years before I became involved or became president. Uh, it started with a group of lawyers who were interested in uh, spreading the word as to how to, to try cases and how to educate people about uh, those that are injured and what you can do and involved into the Association of Trial Lawyers of America. And uh, during the years, it uh, became mostly an educational group, and then it become involved, became involved in uh, uh, the political arena. And it pretty much is the, uh, the primary uh, organization that uh, is most interested in, in protecting uh, the rights of individuals to uh, trial by jury. Uh, it's uh, the one place that uh, people can go uh, uh, if they have a problem for redress is to go to a plaintiff's lawyer. Those are the only lawyers you go to. Exactly. Sort of thing. 
Exactly. And you found that uh, you said more political as you as years have gone by. I would assume the efforts of tort reform have uh, galvanized a lot of the uh, the AAJ folks. Right. You know, that's a, a great phrase, tort reform. It sounds good to us. Anytime you say reform, it sounds good uh-huh. to anybody. But uh, basically what tort reform has always been has been some way to limit the rights of the individual. Limit the amount that they can recover. Limit the, uh, the, the uh, number of people they can recover from. Mm-hmm. Limit the number of years they have to do something, and, and on and on and on. It's always a limit. Sometimes the forum that they can even sometimes the forum, yeah. uh, and uh, you know you, you hear all kinds of uh, uh, attempts that are made uh, to uh, make it more difficult for the plaintiff. Well, that's what AAJ is all about: trying to fight for the plaintiffs and uh, trying to fight for the, uh, I guess, the call them the common man to try to allow that person. Uh, access to the courts and right. to redress grievances. These aren't the lawyers that are on, on K Street in Washington or the right. lawyers that are on Wall Street. These are the lawyers that are working for the, the guy who's got a problem. Exactly. Well, w- back when you were the uh, president of AAJ, what kind of cases were you were you mostly involved with uh, that became the the cases that are most controversial back then? What, what kind of cases were the ones that were causing most of the issues to be raised? Well, actually, uh, around that time, uh, I was doing two kinds of cases, uh, the medical malpractice mm-hmm. uh, and also a drug product liability. We started uh, some uh, concepts in, in that that uh, uh, evolved into the Daubert decision uh, that you mentioned and mm-hmm. uh, tried to point out that the way things were set up right there, even then and, and now, as far as that is concerned, is that the, the necessity of proving a drug uh, safe doesn't exist. The difficulty is that uh, we have to uh, prove that the drug is not safe. No one has to prove that it's safe. Well, and I, I know the FDA is a very big part of all that, and I'm sure you've had many, many dealings with them. You know, the FDA doesn't actually do testing. A lot of people think they do. Well, it's interesting about Let's talk about that because uh, I guess a lot of private enterprises are involved in that testing. Aren't well, they? and actually the people that do the testing are the, are the drug companies, and they submit their data that they choose to submit, and the FDA gets that data. And that's what they make their decisions upon. Now, if that data is false and nobody ever finds out about it, then so be it. So some once in a while, we find out that there's some false data. Exactly. That's, I guess, what the role of the, the plaintiff attorney is in job. this role. That's exactly right. Well, let's get right to your claim to fame because I know a lot of our audience is interested in this topic. And you were involved in this Daubert versus Merrill Dow uh, case. Well, share your experience about that case with us and uh, tell our audience why is it considered such a, a landmark. Well, the, the case involved, uh, uh, as in many other cases at that time, uh, a couple of children uh, who had uh, a severe limb, arm deformities uh, in those cases. And uh, the, the common thread through many of these cases was that the, uh, the mothers had ingested a drug called uh, Bendectin, and they did it uh, during a certain period of time during the pregnancy when the, the limbs were developing. And uh, very difficult to prove. I mean, obviously, nobody is there watching the limb develop in the womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you would have to figure out, well, what made this child as opposed to the next child? And you start finding out that the common thread is a, a drug. So, we, uh, we pursued those cases on that basis and, and uh, had some success uh, in the state courts. And uh, the company started to try to move the case to the federal courts, thinking that they would have a more favorable forum in the federal courts. And eventually, uh, the case, uh, the Daubert case, worked its way from the California courts, uh, circuit courts, through the appellate courts, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, at that point in time, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision that uh, we all know of as Daubert that basically eased the uh, uh, 
the rules on presenting scientific evidence. The big big thing in the case that uh, most of us that worked in the field that thought was important and did not disagree with was that uh, the judge uh, would have the opportunity to decide if the expert, uh, expert's methodology, his way of determining and getting to his opinion mm-hmm. was of the kind that would be generally be used in the field. And if they decided that it was, and that's where the gatekeeper theory would come in, if they decided that it was, then you would hear the opinion. Right. Unfortunately, uh, as uh, the time progressed, uh, many of the judges decided that uh, they were going to decide not the methodology, but whether or not the opinion was correct. <laughs> you know that was going to head that direction. Sure. Uh, you could anticipate that. And, and, and that's what happened. And now I think people look back on it and they're starting to say, hmm, that's really not the purpose of the opinion. That's why there's been so much written about it. In a lot of ways, it would depend upon uh, the political leanings of the uh, particular uh, judges that would be on the circuit court or on the appellate court. Well, you often hear about experts being challenged on Daubert grounds, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's it's that whole phrase is part of the lexicon now. That's, of, that's what it's become. In yeah. litigation, yeah. And you're the guy behind it all. I guess so. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> let's, before we leave that, t- tell us about your experience in the Supreme Court. Not, not many of us have... Uh, argued cases that have been this, uh, I'll call them notorious, let's say. How was that experience for you? Uh, Very interesting. You know, people that are trial lawyers, uh, like me, uh, we try cases in front of juries and and that sort of thing. And many of us uh, also go ahead and try uh, argue cases in the the appellate courts um, without any hesitation. Uh, When you get to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you, you recognize that you're making or going to make some sort of law that may be very, very, very relevant to a lot of people. I think that the intelligent thing to do at that point is you go to the expert, <laughs> uh, the people that argue these cases. And there are attorneys that do nothing but argue cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's what we did. And um, uh, it, it was it's a very interesting thing. When you go into the U.S. Supreme Court, it's uh, very dramatic, uh, and you have uh, lines of people waiting to get in to sure. see this particular case. And you sit down and you realize that when these people come out from behind the curtain, the nine judges, that uh, these are very, very, very powerful people. And um, they uh, uh, hear the arguments, and uh, the people that are doing the arguments who are also very experienced. It's a, it's a very interesting world that they live in, a very theoretical world, a very maybe is not human uh, as many of us like to think, it's a, it's cut and dried. What does the law say? Yeah, and so it's a, it's a real experience to see that. And uh, you know what you see a lot is, or you hear about a lot, is the the justices break right in and ask uh, a numerous number of uh, questions, relevant, hopefully relevant questions, but uh, they can be quite uh, disconcerting, can't they? they? They can be very disconcerting, and you can see, uh, you know, you sit there for the first five minutes and you don't hear any questions coming, and. Uh, uh, any of us would uh, sit there and say, well, we're pretty good at what we do. We could have done this. And then the questions start coming, and you realize that uh, uh, the judges are very well prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're probably always well prepared. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, uh, uh, if you're arguing the case, you have the ability to know and you, the knowledge as to what it is that might be bothering these particular judges, and you prepare for that. Well, you obviously did the right thing when you hired the, uh, the, the expert with local right. knowledge. I made, right. a, I made a pledge to myself, uh, by the way. That if I ever play Augusta National, I'm hiring a local caddy. That's exactly right. Absolutely, that's right. Well, let's uh, ask about ask you about some of the challenges uh, that plaintiffs are now facing in the courts 
in the medical malpractice arena. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's going on these days in medical malpractice? I know a lot. We just had a guest here not too long ago who talked about in, in one of the states, eight out of 10 cases in the med mal area are being won by the defendants. So, so there's a lot of challenges to this. Uh, oh, I, I think that uh, that's very common. Even uh, uh, in, in the jurisdictions that I practice in, you'll, you'll hear that, uh, that that's at least uh, correct. Uh, eight out of ten, perhaps even nine out of ten, are won by the that go to court. They go to a jury trial, won right. by the defendants. The cases have become uh, very difficult for many reasons. First of all, you have to understand we're trained. Those of us that do this, we're trained in law. We're not physicians, and in order for us to be able to uh, uh, to comprehend what it is that went wrong, because many times we have a, uh, a reaction. You listen to the story. And you say, something's wrong here. This doesn't fit. This shouldn't happen. A person shouldn't go into the hospital with a heart attack and come out losing a leg or missing a part of his stomach, that sort of thing. And that, those things happen. And why do they happen? And you start trying to analyze what happened. You have to go through records and you find out uh, sometimes the records uh, can be very, very incorrect. Not just, uh, I'm not even just saying that they could be made up or false, but uh, which happens from time to time, but they can be very incorrect. Uh, and you will find that, uh, you know, and, and residents may write up stories as to what happened after the event uh, that uh, just doesn't fit with what you're seeing. So you've got to deal with that. You have to understand what's going on with the record. Uh, it's hard to get the records sometimes. And we all say, well, we get the record. Well, sure, you get the record. Sometimes you got to wait months and months to get the record. And you have to ask many times. After you get the records and you decide that it's worthwhile looking at the case, uh, you have to have an expert. You have yeah. to have a doctor who's willing to testify. To interpret, the, interpret the records. Well, to interpret the records and tell you what they think the standard of care is and mm-hmm. whether or not that standard has been followed. And if, if, if not, is that what caused the injury? And, uh, you know, people that are doing this kind of work are, are very hard to find that are willing to testify for, for the victim. It's, uh, there's used to be what we call when I started practicing the conspiracy of silence. Yeah. And anybody that thinks that is not still the case is, is sadly mistaken. There is still a very serious conspiracy of silence. You don't just call up the doctor who was a subsequent treating doctor and say, hey, did somebody mess up? It doesn't work that way. They don't want to talk to you. One of the other, uh, one of the other uh, common feelings out there was that the doctor was almost like a god. And, and right. it was very difficult for the doctor, for a, the common person to mm-hmm. find the doctor at fault in many instances. Is that still That's prevalent? Absolutely. I, I think anybody that does is would tell you that the human nature of, of jurors is that they do not. We do not want to find that a doctor made a mistake that caused somebody his life or a loss of limb or something. You don't want to do that. So you don't walk in there if you're the person who's been injured on a level playing field with a jury. Well, here you have your client who's already physically suffering from mm-hmm. the from the debilitating issue that, that brought him to you or her to you. And then these court challenges you're talking about with trying to find experts and going through all the information. And then there's something else that they can run into. And let's talk about that. And that is the biases of judges. How, do, how often do you find that the biases of judges enter into the equation of how the result of a case comes out? Well, what, let's, let's split that down in, into two parts. Sure. First of all, we have to keep in mind that uh, even though those of us practicing it will tell you that uh, we think it's the greatest system in the world, it's not a perfect system. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever said it was a perfect system. Uh, the judges aren't perfect. Uh, uh, you know, and if you find judges that are uh, biased, many times it's, it's – uh, a very small percentage, you would say, are biased because they want to be biased. 
That's not the way it usually works. But because of the way they have uh, been in their practice, they may have been with a defense firm. Right. Uh, they may, you know, uh, very few times you find attorneys that have come out of plaintiff's firms that get appointed to these positions. So the judges may have an inherent feeling that, gee, they're trying to get this doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, so we can't let that happen. And is that's not necessarily a judge saying, I'm going to hurt the plaintiff's case, but they're very, very difficult. Uh, you have to toe the line on what you're doing, the way you're going to put the evidence forward. And, and laws have come down over the last uh, 15 or 20 years that make it very, very difficult uh, to uh, qualify people for one thing and then to prove your case. Well, I, I would say that most people in America, as they speak about doctors, also speak about judges in the same mm-hmm. fashion. They feel judges are typically fair, and I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but some judges in some states, as you know, are elected to, the, to, the, to, right. their, to their positions and you know, have the influence of uh, contributions and, and perhaps what certain lawyer groups or, mm-hmm. or, or, or particular lawyers have done for them. And there's almost a natural suspicion, let's say, that there may be some bias there. Is that have you found that to be the case? And and and, and are, are those things maybe not so prevalent where judges are appointed, for example? Um, I would say that I don't. There was a recent case in West Virginia that came down, and that, in that recent case, uh, there was a large amount of money that had been contributed to a particular judge, and the Supreme Court actually did find that that was a reason for the judge to withdraw from the case. Oh, okay, that's just within the last few months. Uh, you can find the same, I mean, let's face it, we all have biases. Yeah. You can't get around that. And you can find the same biases in someone who's elected versus someone who's appointed. Okay. And that's not necessarily the big criteria, although I think a lot of people feel that we have a situation uh, in, in where I practice, uh, a variation in both Maryland and D.C., uh, in which there are commissions that uh, will appoint uh, three people, mm-hmm. say they're qualified, and then the uh, the judge or the uh, the governor or you know whoever is in power at that point will pick one of those three, and that kind of gets a, a pretty good way of uh, getting three qualified people, none of whom are very extreme on what they may believe. Because if somebody's really extreme, that's not the one that's going to be chosen. Right. So, well, you know, you're speaking about these issues, it's tough tough issues in the court. In terms of medical malpractice, trying to get to the the courthouse, and you're also talking about potential bias of judges as 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 one issue. What about a real life example of a case that you've had where you've had uh, an injured person you've felt very strongly about, you've uh, gotten the experts together to develop your theories, gone into the courthouse, and uh, maybe the result hasn't quite been what you th- been what you thought it was going to be, and any, anything come to mind or, or a case that was a great success where you didn't think it was going to be one? I, I think our audience likes to, to hear real people's uh, stories. Well, you know, it's interesting when you say the success. Uh, what people don't realize in, is that in every jurisdiction, a judge, after the jury has reached its uh, verdict, uh, a judge has an ability to do a couple of things that people don't think about. Number one, the judge can say, I don't like that verdict. It, it, it doesn't meet uh, the standards that I feel it should meet, and throw the case out and start all over. The judge could also decide to reduce the award. That's what we call remitter. Remitter. Remitter, and uh, that means uh, if you got an award that the judge thought was too high, then he can decide what he thinks is appropriate. So, or an editor. Very few states have editors, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, that doesn't work that way yeah. uh, too often. But uh, darn. 
And, and you, I haven't heard of an editor uh, anywhere for many, many years. Yeah. But you do hear remitters. But, you know, you have cases that, uh, um, I'm trying to think of what we're working. I, I can give you a very good example of sure. one that we had just last year in which uh, a man had just retired from uh, uh, being a teacher. And he happened to be in West Virginia. And uh, when this happened, his wife was a sales lady at uh, the local Walmart. And no sooner had he retired uh, than he... Uh, came down with what was probably pneumonia. And uh, he uh, went into the hospital and uh, he was given a, a, a cocktail of drugs uh, that were prescribed to him and some tests weren't done. And he developed a very serious case uh, of what's called rhabdomyolysis, which basically means the muscles started breaking down. Uh, all kind of warning signs in the record, the lab results uh, that were done were bad. Unfortunately, in, in West Virginia, uh, there is a, a limitation on what you can receive, uh, and they call them caps. In his case, uh, the, the cap was $250,000. Uh, and uh, for non-economic damages, meaning pain and suffering, this is a guy who has to use a wheelchair, crutches the rest of his life, just retired, and uh, had very little economic loss because he just retired. Yeah. So, if for all intents and purposes, the, 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 under that law, unless you can show it's a catastrophic injury, which would mean 500000 as opposed to 250000 the most uh, he could get was roughly either three hundred fifty mm-hmm. versus maybe 600000 if everything went right in the case. So, an attempt was made to settle that case, um, and basically, the insurance uh, company's attorneys basically look at you and they say... Uh, Gee, the most you can get out of this case is $350,000. Why should we pay you $350,000? And any of us, any of us would have looked at this man and said, that's ridiculous. Because even some of that has to be paid back to the insurance company for health benefits. Right. Just ridiculous. So we went ahead and tried the case. And because uh, they wanted to pay a lot less than the three fifty. Sure. The jury comes back and awards uh, about a million point six. A million for him. And five hundred for his wife for what she lost. Unfortunately, under the West Virginia law, the most that the two of them could get either was either two fifty or five hundred. And so the judge uh, did award him the five hundred. She got nothing, nothing because of the cap. Sure, this woman is a saint for what she's been doing. And uh, you know the insurance companies kind of look at you and they say, "Gee, that's too bad. We haven't lost that much more than if we had settled with you." Interesting. So what we are doing in that case, we are challenging the constitutionality of the law. It, it makes no sense at all that the the wife would get nothing. Well, there's you know another maybe another Daubert in your future. Well, that may be. It won't be. It won't get to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it would get to the the top court in the state. Well, there you go. Anytime you can be at the top court of anything. Well, there you go. There you go. That's where you want to be, Barry. Let's take a quick break right now, and uh, we'll come back in a few minutes with some more interesting conversation with medical malpractice lawyer Barry Nace. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. 
This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you joined us. Uh, I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and we're back with our special guest, attorney Barry Nace, senior partner at Paulson & Nace in Washington, D.C. And uh, since we're at the AAJ convention in San Francisco, uh, Barry was also the president of this organization back in the, in the early 90s. Well, Barry, you've been an attorney for over 40 years. You've seen the legal profession come and go, change. Uh, change is always a constant. Uh, what do you see right now? in terms of the future of the litigation business. Give us a little broad perspective on where that's going. Well, I think one of the, uh, the, the things that sometimes people fail to realize is that this is an adversarial system. Um, unfortunately, what we also see nowadays, I think, is uh, a, uh, a, a boldness uh, on the part of the insurance industry and the healthcare profession to to fight cases that uh, we look at and most of us will look at and say, that case should be settled. And they're willing to do it in part because they know, as you mentioned earlier, what the, uh, the results are in the courts. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, they also know that uh, these cases are very, very expensive. They're very costly, yes. Uh, and tell, attorney, us about, tell us about the know, cost involved in, the case, in pursuing a case in the court. Well, an attorney doesn't take a case, uh, a malpractice case, and just walk into the courtroom. Time is is incredibly uh, complicated as far as taking depositions, trying to figure things out that happen because uh, we, we kind of joke that uh, when you look at the records, you don't usually find something in the records that says doctor committed malpractice. Those mm-hmm. phrases aren't used. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it's a lot of time trying to figure it out, a lot of time, but the costs that are involved in taking depositions, paying the court reporters, having experts review the case. And then, if, for example, if we want to take a deposition of the defense attorneys, uh, they're entitled to be paid uh, a fee for what they do. Uh, and they don't do it for nothing. And so if we want to really understand what their side of the case is, and, and it doesn't matter, if we have one expert, they're going to have three or four. They're right. going to afford three or four. Uh, and you certainly find out very quickly that the doctors are uh, willing to charge anything from $500 an hour to $5,000 to appear for a deposition. And so the, the costs are really... Uh, prohibitive, not just because uh, you don't want to pay that, but uh, uh, you have to take into account what is the end result going to be. If you do have a, a, a success for the, uh, the person that's injured, you don't want to pay it all out in cost. Right. So we have to think about that too. So you have a lot of costs that are involved, and uh, uh, it's it's pretty much rare, even though we take the cases on a, what's called a contingency fee. Exactly. Our fee is uh, you know what we would get because people can't afford to pay by the hour. We get right down to it. Uh, we take uh, uh, that on a contingency. We still have to put money out, substantial, fifty to hundred thousand dollars. Most of these cases. No, that's got to be for the smaller practitioner. That's got to be a killer. It's a killer, and the insurance companies know this. The doctors know this, and uh, uh, so this is a means of dragging the case out, dragging it out, and dragging it out. And the more you uh, uh, get into it, uh, and of course, I would assume a lot of the small practitioners refer these cases to the bigger practitioners, so they have some resources there. They do. They, they do. Take those what about uh, you know, the, 
that you know we talked about the statistic nine out of ten or eight out of ten cases are, are lost to the defense i mean those are all cases with contingent fee contracts mm-hmm. and they've all lost those costs still have to be paid by the lawyer but the client doesn't get charged for that do they well you know can you charge a client for it sure you can mm-hmm. do we charge a client for it Generally not. And if we were to charge a client for it, these clients can't afford to pay right. because uh, they've been injured to the point that they, you know, they can't. Uh, so you're, you're eating the expense, essentially. That's a, exactly right. Yeah. So if you're going to eat an expense, you know that can happen. Yeah. Uh, you want to be pretty darn sure that you've got a case that uh, you got a good chance of prevailing on. And if you got a good chance of prevailing on, maybe get the case uh, settled. Uh, and uh, and do something for that person that's been hurt. And it, al- it also means that as you look at these cases that come through your door, you got to be very careful about which very, ones you take. Very very selective. Yeah. If, if a case makes it all the way to the uh, uh, to a jury trial, uh, and the jury is going to get a chance to d- decide, what that means is that uh, the the attorney has spent time and money on it, has been able to convince the court that this is a meritorious case to be heard and decided by a jury. And uh, so you've gone a long way. You've taken a lot of steps to get there. As long as you have an expert that can pass that Daubert standard. Well, that's, that's also what true. You need. That's also true. <laughs> Unfortunately, I got to say, cases don't have just one expert. <laughs> I know. Uh, you, you may have four or five in different areas that you have to. And sometimes, and sometimes they countervail each other. In terms which is of their exactly opinions. one of the court. What the courts have done have made things very more difficult and more costly. And more costly. Well, let's finish up here with one uh, interesting and quite timely topic, and that is. Healthcare reform. Right. right now, there's a national healthcare debate going on, uh, and you'll hear from the side that wants to keep things more the status quo that one of the problems with healthcare costs are the number of unnecessary diagnostic tests that are taking place these days due to the fact that medical malpractice litigation has given rise to this need by a doctor to protect themselves. How do you answer those kinds of questions? Uh, charges? Well, you say, first of all, what is the evidence that supports that argument? I haven't heard that evidence, number one. Number two, what is the cost of malpractice insurance uh, in, a, uh, in, in general when you look at this whole thing? And, and the government statistics have told us year after year after year, and it hasn't changed, that the cost of malpractice insurance is less than one-tenth of one percent of the cost of health care in this country. It's really hard to imagine how malpractice suits are therefore affecting what is going on with the healthcare. And as far as, uh, you know, people say, well, we shouldn't do this test, we shouldn't do that test. I was once in a program where somebody said, well, we're doing all these tests on these uh, young men that are knocked out in the football field. We got to do CAT scans. We got to check them out. And I stopped and said to myself, you know, is that unnecessary? If your son has been knocked out on the football field and he has a swollen and he's not quite sure where he is, I don't think it's an unnecessary test to do a CAT scan. Well, you know, the, that's another, you've raised another good point. And uh, I know anesthesiologists were having uh, very high premium issues. They were very concerned. And uh, yet, I think there were some court cases that changed their behavior and how they, how they, how they uh, administered anesthesia, which then led to a diminishing of their premiums. Is no that right? Question. Absolutely. The anesthesiologists uh, still make mistakes. Yeah. Let's not say they don't. But... They got them, uh, got it together, and realized that uh, you know uh, the reason that we have malpractice lawsuits is because something's going wrong. And they uh, they worked very hard over the last uh, twenty years, I would say, to uh, to minimize that. And they've done a very good job of minimizing. And yes, you do see less um, uh, anesthesia malpractice cases, but you're still going to see them. Nobody's ever going to take care of the uh, uh, eliminate all malpractice. Uh, human error is going to occur, and when it occurs. Uh, 
the person that caused it uh, is responsible. Well, one of the hopes of the kinds of litigation you give rise to and trying to help your clients is that the results may help to change the behavior right. of the people in the medical profession as they pursue their their, uh, their yeah, careers. And the anesthesiologists are a very good example. Yeah, great example. Well, uh, you know, I think it's been a great show. I, I think you've uh, brought up a lot of interesting points. Any final thoughts before we close out? Well, I, I would just say that people should uh, uh, listen to these arguments about how malpractice uh, cases are affecting uh, healthcare and be really jaundiced uh, when you hear these things and, and say, where is that evidence? Where is that proof? Before we start saying, uh, let's give up some of our rights. Well, with that, let's close. And I want to thank you uh, again for uh, joining us, Barry. Uh, if someone wanted to reach you, how would they do that? Well, they can reach me in Washington, D.C. I'm in the, in the, in the directory there. And uh, Is there a phone number they can call? Sure. It's uh, 202-463-1999. Well, hopefully you'll get a few of those calls, too. And in case uh, you're a first-time listener, you should know that every Ringler Radio Show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com or the Legal Talk Network at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Or you can even listen uh, from iTunes, Barry. Did you know that you can download from iTunes these Ringler Radio shows onto your iPod? And as you stand there with your bad foot today, <laughs> you put those earbuds in your ears, you'll listen to your voice. That'll be cool. Well, listen, everyone else, thanks for listening. Barry, thank you again for uh, joining us. And now the rest of you go out and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.